there were occasions where you have some people who don't want to go join the new vision and and you have to deal with that as well but getting that leadership team instead of 10 individuals now it's a team of 10 people that has the power of 20 that's really what hits the accelerator for a business and that was one thing i always tried to do was to try to unlock that synergy and create some leadership momentum on the lead team of a particular business Hey everybody, this is Driven By and I am Sam Coates. On this podcast, you're going to hear experiences, lessons, insights, and the drivers behind why my guests have built what they have built and how this applies to what drives you. It's great to have you listening to this show. For more episodes and more information, go to podcast.sampcoates.com or check out this podcast on every major platform app. My guest this week is Tom Cadian. Tom spent 40 years working for International Paper. For those that don't know of IP, it is the largest pulp and paper company in the world with $21 billion in revenue. While at IP, Tom was over many parts of the company, some of those including head of IP Europe, IP Asia, IP India, Expedex, which was an $8 billion distribution business owned by IP, head of global citizenship, and more. After retiring from international paper, Tom took over the leadership of U of M Ventures, which was created to give students economic opportunity and real-world experience while getting their degree at the University of Memphis. U of M Ventures has 300 employees and has grown significantly. This is a great conversation that covers the not-so-fancy beginning of a corporate career, what keeps you engaged for 40 years, how to evolve as responsibilities increase, what does a healthy family life look like while moving all over the world, what makes a good acquisition, why keep working after 40 years, and more. Hey everybody, I'll just make this easy. Do you need insurance? Do you want another opinion about your insurance? Just go ahead and call Matt Haga with State Farm. It'll be easy. If you're thinking about it, just do it. We do have listeners to this show from all over the world. So this offers only for listeners in the state of Tennessee and Mississippi in the United States. Matt Haga State Farm offers auto, home, renters, business, and life insurance. Go to madhaga.com. That's M-A-T-T-H-A-A-G-A.com and contact them. When you contact Matt, tell him I sent you. Now we're going to get back to the show. Tom, what made you want to, after you finished IP at almost 40 years, take over UMRF Ventures? Well, when I retired from IP, I was, I had just turned 61. So I, I'd like to think I still had a little gas left in the tank. And I had been IP senior person over at, at the University of Memphis for about, I don't know, 10, almost 15 years and was very involved. And David Rudd asked me when he found out I was retiring, he asked me if I would be interested in working over there and with UMR Adventures. And my wife was fine with that. It was just another way to contribute to the university and the students there and the community and not just sit home and, you know, wonder what I'm going to do next. So I, I retired on June 30th and I 
started sometime in July and officially joined the payroll on August 1st. Uh, so I really didn't have that much of a break, but it's it's been a great now almost three years at Ventures. I know you and I have talked before, but I know you're a college football player at Bucknell. And, you know, I know there's an aspect of just with being an athlete, being competitive, just sticking things out, endurance, et cetera. But can you talk a little bit about your perspective of work? Because from a financial standpoint, there's no need for you to have to work after being 39 years with international paper and being 61. But it sounds like service or it sounds like your interest in the students. It sounds like your interest in the community and the value, you know, what ventures could do. It sounds like there's just a, there's a value, there's a core belief to work that you have. And I'm just curious if, if A, that's true and B, if you'll share it. Well, yeah, it's true. I, I probably got that from my father. My father was a real hardworking guy. And as you mentioned, I, I was very involved in athletics growing up and in high school and in college. I played football. I competed in track. And when I got out of college, I always felt like work or my career at IP was another way to compete. And now that my athletic career was over, it didn't mean I had to stop competing. It was just a different arena to compete in. So I always just tried to look at it and and go at it with that kind of uh, enthusiasm. So then when I retired, again, I was 61. I I didn't want to go home and watch television. And, you know, this I've always believed since we moved, we've lived in Memphis three different times in the late 80s from 2000 to 2003. And then we came back in 2006. And this is our home. My kids consider it home. And I've always felt like a stronger University of Memphis is going to contribute to a stronger city of Memphis and Shelby County. So it was just another way to continue to help in areas that are important to me over at the university and in the community. I think it's impressive here and Dr. Rudd talk about doubling the number of students at the University of Memphis while not increasing tuition and then also capping the expense on an annual basis, but then also with ventures and with what you were involved with before and what you're leading now, but then creating economic opportunity for students while they're at the university making great paying jobs. It's a very complete package and offering, and it seems like a very complete vision. And then obviously, Dr. Rudd, getting you to come on board with all of your experience. Can you talk a little bit about maybe the value that either a Memphis alum may not fully appreciate or understand about just kind of the stimulating work and vision that maybe is going on at the University of Memphis that Dr. Rudd obviously is leading, but then somebody like you want to come on for just a belief in the benefit of that and then taking that on. Well, yeah, the university is clearly the flagship university in here in town. We've got some other fine universities as well, but with over 20,000 students, Memphis, the University of Memphis has a huge impact on the city. It's a bit of a unique university. I was a first-generation college student, and I think 45% of the students there are first-generation college students, which is high relative to other state institutions. A lot of the students are Pell Grant eligible, and the Pell Grant eligible students don't have as high a graduation rate as the non-Pell Grant eligible students. So 
you know, we've got a lot of students working multiple jobs who are trying to put themselves through school, and that often gets in the way of them graduating or multiple jobs gets in the way of their academic record. So the idea behind UMRF Ventures is to create as many good paying jobs as we can for students on campus, do it in in a professional environment, create pathways for them to graduate and get good employment once they do. So that was the vision behind uh, others who started the company. They asked me to come in and run it, but that was the vision of the folks at the university and some executives at FedEx. And, you know, I'm happy to say now we're up to over 200 students on our payroll. They average about $1,000 a month in income, work 10 to 20 hours a week. We pay $15 or more an hour. And you can go to the university for $11,000 a year. So if you're one of the students who are working at Ventures, it helps you manage your life and your financial obligations. And we schedule their work around their campus commitments, their their school commitments, and it it's worked out fine. At this point, we've got over four over four hundred students have worked for us for at least a semester, and we're on our way to hitting five million dollars in wages paid out to students in the last three years. How would you advise or recommend to a student to take? full advantage, like let's say somebody's hungry, somebody has a strong work ethic, so they're at the University of Memphis, they're working for ventures, or they're doing something of that equivalent. Like I'm just thinking through my own experience, I did go to Memphis and I worked and I put myself through college, but I also, I did a lot of other things too that I think were not probably the best use of my time. And Memphis, Memphis is a unique city, but there's, there's a lot of people here in Memphis that believe and promoting it and giving back and introducing people, networking, et cetera, to give anybody the advantage that they can have. So just from a maybe a corporate perspective, maybe from a curiosity, a learning perspective, maybe from a growth perspective, if somebody came, let's say they wanted to meet with you and have lunch and just ask you, you know, how can they make the best use of their time at the University of Memphis? What are maybe some just overall high points that you might share on how to be a good steward of that? Well, I think you said it. It was the same way for me. I learned the hard way. You know, managing your time is something that you really have to learn. And I, I, I didn't know that when I went to college. And I had a very unsuccessful uh, first semester in college myself, trying to manage freshman football and biology and organic chemistry. And I, I failed at just about all of the all of the above. So, you know, I think the Kids today are, uh, young adults today are much smarter than I was, but managing your time and realizing that how much you can get done it really is uh, a skill that you learn, probably learn best when you are in that college age. So, you know, our students are mostly, you know, carrying full credit loads and most of them work 10 to 20 hours a week and they still have social lives, but they, they realize they or they have to learn to realize not to waste time. And that's also true in the corporate world. I always used to say when I was at IP, as a manager, I couldn't tell the difference. I couldn't tell if somebody was working at 85% of their capacity or 75, but I could tell if they were working at 100% or 110. And 
you know, it's the ones that are working 100 or 110 that are getting ahead in life. And the ones who are working at 75% of the capacity who are in the middle of the bell curve and competing with everybody else. So we try to help our students. We don't just have, we have other ways that we try to help our students get through school, get through life. We have quarterly lunch and learns and and on subjects like how to get a job, how to manage stress, how to do all these other things. And we try to share those experiences with the students, but they have to learn, like I did sometimes the hard way, that when you have a job, even if it's a part-time job while you're in college, you have to show up, you have to get results, you have to treat people with dignity and respect. Yeah. I mean, it's, this is, you know, put on your big boy pants and, and go to work. Yeah. You know, IP is a close to maybe higher now, but the last number I saw close to a $22 billion company. And with any organization, there's going to be inefficiencies. There's going to be things that need to be improved. There's going to be consequences of large bureaucratic, you know, organizations, so to speak, even when things are good or when things are adding value or things are moving along. I'm just curious from, from your perspective, starting at the ground up and then just being given responsibility after responsibility, moving all over the world, how did you create tempo or how did you handle your own sense of urgency and, you know, maximizing time, efficiencies, et cetera. But how did you incorporate that through your own day-to-day work behavior? And then how did you kind of approach that with any team that was under you or team that you were leading or any, you know, large amount of people? Well, you always, I've always believed in, in leading by example. And as I said earlier, I, my father told me that you, you may not have to be the most talented, but if you work harder than other people, you'll be more successful. An example, nobody's a naturally born discus thrower, <laughs> crack. But yeah. if you work harder than the other people who are throwing the discus, chances are you'll be better than they are and get further in the conference championships or whatever and that kind of thing. And so translating that to your question in IP, even when I was early on in sales, I would, if a customer said, would you like, all right, let's set up an appointment. I'd say, well, how about seven o'clock AM? And not because I loved getting up early, but I thought that was a way of, I figured they probably didn't have a lot of sales reps asking for 7 AM appointments and that that might separate me from the rest of the people competing for their time and and their business. So you just, you do that and you go at things with energy. And, you know, back in the days before we were all on the internet, you know, you'd write notes and, and yeah, I used to travel a lot, but one of the ways I took advantage of that was I would always be working on planes. I would always be working in my hotel room. I'd get a lot of volume done while other people were watching movies or, or whatever. And then your team, you know, if you connect with your team and you share the goals and the reasons with them, they understand and they want to be part of a successful winning effort as well. So they follow pretty easily. But we used to say it's a full, business is a full contact sport and you have to go at it with effort and enthusiasm and, and energy. Talking about working on planes when other people are watching movies or taking 7 a.m. calls. I mean, I know it sounds like your father was very influential in your life. And I know you were on the track team in college and you also played football. So obviously you're competitive. 
and there's a sense of urgency and drive. But to do those things from a business perspective, it usually seems that people that do that have an interest or have a draw to that work or to those responsibilities, whatever that may be. Do you feel like because of how you are wired just about being competitive and being an athlete that you could have done that with anything? Or was there anything in particular with IP that kind of drew you in and kind of kept you there and kept you engaged for 39 years? Well, first, IP is a great place. It's a great company with a lot of, I'll say, strong character and values. And for most of my career, I had really good managers and coworkers who I learned from and enjoyed working with. Some of them, I mean, most of my best friends in my life still work or used to work at IP. And in terms of the work, I just wanted to do better than people thought I could do. And if this is the goal, let's see if we can do better than that and surprise people. And most people can, you know, rally around winning. It, it's, uh, I think that's kind of common. But IP is a place where it's, you know, the, obviously they reward winning, but it's not a place where winning at any cost, you know, at all costs is, is accepted. You got to do things the right way. And it's the kind of place you'd want your kids to work. So I, I had opportunities to leave. Frankly, you only leave companies, if your career is going pretty well, like-minded, the only reason you'd leave is because of you, got, you ran into a boss that you didn't like or respect. Or, and, and I had one or two of those out of many, but, but one or two. And then, then I just tried to convince myself I wasn't going to let a good boss, or a bad boss, I should say, derail me from a longer term goal. And I just stayed and, and IP was always good about giving me new opportunities. I never got bored, never felt like I had to wait for anybody to, to die or retire to get my next opportunity. So I just stayed with it. How old were you when you ran into like one or two or however many bad bosses? And then second to that, how long were they over you? And then third, can you elaborate maybe some advice or perspective, if you go through a season where maybe you do feel like you have a bad boss or maybe a dishonest boss or a bad boss for the company, et cetera, are there things that you can pass on to maybe think holistically about how to A, do what's good for the company, but then B, handle that the best way for oneself, maybe how they should? Yeah. Full disclosure, I actually left IP after, I want to say, four years. I started out as a sales trainee, was in sales, was a sales manager by the time I was 26, had a, you know several salespeople working for me, got married, and I left the company because of a boss that I was working for at that point in time. And I never felt good about leaving. I, I felt like I quit, and I, which I did. But then they, IP actually, within a year, IP actually let that uh, manager go and they called me up and asked me if I'd come back and I did. So uh, I, I never even lost my year of service because I was gone less than a year. But yeah, I left because of an individual and I never felt good about it. And I, I, don't, I just don't like stopping midway in a mission and going off somewhere else. It just didn't feel like the right thing at the time. And I was very glad to come back and and again, it, it, it's a place that offers you a lot of challenges, a lot of opportunities, and a, a great way to learn. And as, as long as you keep working hard and 
doing the things right, you, you'll get more opportunities and not be bored. And that's what played out for me. It sounds like you're pretty agnostic before starting with IP. You just wanted to be a part of a, a team, a culture. You wanted opportunity. And then you just started getting more and more opportunity and kind of moving through things pretty quickly. I mean, is that correct that you're, I know you had a marketing degree, but you were kind of all in on the right kind of company and then you're ready to go from there. It wasn't, more, it wasn't merely like a specific kind of strategy or a specific type of work focus that you were after. I wasn't particularly strategic about my career. I, I was, when I graduated, I, I was uh, looking for a job like most people. My, my academic performance, again, I started off really slow my freshman year and I couldn't make up enough ground in the four years that my father expected me to graduate. So <laughs> My, my GPA wasn't going to win me any job offers, so I had to go out and hustle. And, but it, it worked out great. You know, working hard is – I, I try to tell my kids that the days are 24 hours long. They're not going to go any faster or any slower. You might as well pack as much into the 24 <laughs> hours yet. And, of course, they roll their eyes when, that, when I say stuff like that. But uh, What about from a corporate standpoint? Being in the United States, you know, living in Memphis before that, living in Hartford, living in Belgium, were there any hard times from a family perspective, moving family around the country or the world or living around the world? And then also, too, having a very fast-paced corporate responsibilities and lifestyle. A lot of people, it can kind of, they just don't handle it well. They don't handle that, that freedom. They don't handle that autonomy. They don't handle that disconnect relationally, et cetera. Can you talk about maybe things that you learned that were a like just life lessons that you would pass on for people to think about, and then b what did you learn that served you well about how to lead and care and just be vested in your family amidst a lot of moving around and a lot of different roles and responsibilities? Yeah, when I'm with IP, I moved thirteen times in thirty nine years. So some of those were. A couple of those were before I met my wife uh, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but many of them were afterwards. And, and when you move, you know, it's not just your sacrifice, your reward, it, you're dragging along your wife or, or your children with you. So I was fortunate in, in having a very supportive uh, and loving wife who, you know, we actually talked about moving before we got married. Uh, and I wanted to make sure that she was open to that. And she was. Um, and she's pretty adventurous and very independent. But it's hard. I mean, I have uh, four children, and they've all uh, moved several times. My oldest daughter, Samantha, you know, she lived in California, Wisconsin, Connecticut, Memphis, Europe. Uh, and, and she got to go to Europe for her senior year of high school. And, you know, that was it. That was a rough decision. That was a family decision. And Anne-Marie and I decided that we weren't going to leave her home here in Memphis to graduate living with another family. We were, if we were going to go to Europe, we were all going to go together. And, and we felt it was a good enough opportunity for all the children that we, as well as Samantha, that we coerced her into doing it. And she was madder than a hornet for a couple months. But, but now I think she looks back and all the kids look back at their time living abroad as being very beneficial. But it is sacrifices that, that they make as well. So I, th I also think that moving as many times as we have as a family has made us closer as a family. And we could go from one city to another and our 
kids have a built-in, you know, family unit, best friends, and our kids are still pretty close today. Now they're all out of college, but um, I think that helped us be a, a stronger family together. In terms of lessons, one of the things I tell the folks that I work with now is to do a job like I had at IP and to move around like that. And I mean, you really have to have the right partner because, you know, my wife shouldered way more of the parenting burden than I did uh, while I was flying around on airplanes and doing business uh, my wife was raising four children and, you know, keeping the house going and, you know, keeping me, keeping my feet on the ground when that needed to happen. And so picking the right partner is really important. And I saw examples in my life where if you had a, a spouse that wasn't as supportive of that kind of lifestyle and those kinds of choices, it you know, that that faces you know that puts more pressure on your career and the opportunities that you can say yes to so i wouldn't sacrifice a family or a loving relationship for work but if you if you don't have that figured out it it can get in the way uh so that was that was i think important that my wife and i talked about that early on and then she was just terrific as we went through it all so it sounds like just in a real pra- from a practical standpoint uh, it sounds like y'all really communicated and worked through things and you just didn't force her to tell her, hey, we're doing this. I want to do this. You kind of hashed it out and then y'all, y'all had mutual buy-in and agreement. And then y'all still made decisions that your children would not have chosen themselves, but y'all were unified in making those decisions. And then they ended up working out you know, for the family. And you talked about a closer relationship. And then you also said Anne-Marie is just pretty independent too and strong-willed. And so she just kind of had a lot on her shoulders, you know, while you were out of town, a lot of traveling, et cetera. And so, you know, just connecting the dots, it it sounds like that's kind of at least an approach or some things to think about for if a relationship can endure a lot of change or a lot of moving, et cetera. Yeah, that's the right way to think. I mean, I guess my point was it's not just me making the sacrifices and working hard, but your wife and your children are making the sacrifices as well. Now, there were wonderful rewards. We got to visit many places and do many things and experience things that we never imagined, but communicating and having your feet on the ground and and putting family first even though there's sacrifices that my family made, we all we always talked about it and made, I think, pretty rational decisions. And we all, you know, I know I had a I had a boss at one point who proudly told me he accepted three different transfers and went home and talked to his wife each time and told her where they were going next. And Amory thought that was horrible. Why would why would you accept a transfer without talking to me about it? And I, I would never do that. Uh, so we always talked about them for sometimes a long and hard before we accepted the next assignments. But uh, we also figured out how to make them all work for everybody. That's great. I know kind of your first GM job was in Hartford, but then also, you know, VP and then senior VP and then head of Expedex. And I know that doesn't cover all, but that's just part. But I'm curious, when you would take over an organ, a department, or you would take over a portion of the company, or when you would take over a very large portion of the company, et cetera. 
what would be your mindset or what would be your perspective that you would have on coming in and getting a large portion of the company into a place that you feel like it needs to go to? I always approached it as if the people in the business that I was kind of parachuting into a business uh, and I always viewed it as these people are smart. They know the business way better than I do and that I should always listen and ask as many questions and be, and, and be real careful about expressing opinions and points of view before I really understood what was going on. And, you know, you hear a lot of people say your first hundred days and that sort of thing. And, and I probably said that at some point in my life too. But the point was go in and assume that the people that work in an organization are all smart, intelligent, well-intentioned people and learn as much as you can from them. And you'll pick up around the edges what whether your boss is saying we need to do this differently or you can see where the strategy comes up short uh, or, or doesn't have a long enough view of the world. And then you can figure out how to. But the worst thing you could do is go in and say, okay, I'm here. I'm going to fix this place and just follow me when you really don't know the in and outs of, of the business itself. So I think I learned that early on to listen and learn and do a lot more of that than talking and, and professing. Gotcha. So you're saying you'd come in and you would just be very patient and listen, and then you'd start picking apart the things that you wanted to move and change, and you would just work the plan, but you would do it after a period of time of really just trying to affirm and encourage kind of the culture of the group as it was, and then start driving the change. Yeah, and, and, and you have to create some organizational momentum uh, when you're trying to take a business from here to there. So you have to get to know your key leaders, get to know them as business people, and get to know what's important in their lives uh, and what motivates them, and figure out how to get the right people in the right seats on the bus. And in some cases that requires, you know, shuffling people from one position to another or, or bringing in new people. Sometimes, hopefully not, but there were occasions where you have some people who don't want to go join the new vision and, and you have to deal with that as well. But getting that leadership team, you know, to have, Instead of 10 individuals, now it's a team of 10 people that has the power of 20. That's really what hits the accelerator for a business. And that was one thing I always tried to do was to try to unlock that synergy uh, and create some leadership momentum on, on the lead team of a, of a particular business. Because if you got them believing it, then, then they could have a multiplier effect on, a, on the rest of the organization. How did you learn how to worry about the things that needed to be worried about, but then let go of things that drove you nuts that weren't really, that they, it wasn't important to worry about them for long-term success? How did you differentiate that? I had some really good managers in my, early on in my career at IP who taught me how, how and when to dig in. So I was, as you said, I was a marketing guy. I had sales experience, sales management experience. I didn't have any real financial background. I have an MBA uh, for whatever that's worth. But 
I had to dig in and understand finance or I had to dig in and understand a cost system. And I had some bosses who told me that that was really important and how to do that. Uh, and so I followed their advice and then I became curious and I enjoyed digging into those things. So it, it started to feed on itself. But uh, I'd say through having the right kinds of mentors and leaders in my career, I, I, I learned to kind of dig into what's important in terms of, you know, learning how not to sweat the things that you couldn't impact. You know, you quickly learn as you take on more responsibility. If you manage, you know, an organization with 10,000 people at, with the same kind of hands-on approach that you did managing 10 people, there's not enough time in the day and you'll drown. Uh, and you'll dry, and you'll frustrate everybody. So you quickly learn, or I did through just through going through it, uh, what to delegate. And even when you delegate it, you still got to keep an eye on it, but you don't have to do it. And setting up the right kinds of measurement systems and dashboards so that you could keep hearing what's going on or watching what's going on, but doing it in a lot in a much more efficient way so that you could spend your time doing what only you could do you know if you're running an, uh, a billion dollar organization you don't need to be the sales manager in Philadelphia and worrying about that stuff you've got a person doing that and that person can't do what you're supposed to be doing running the whole business you're the only one that can do that so you have to make sure you're not you, know, you have to make sure you got the right people and the right systems in place, but you have to make sure you're spending your time on the stuff that your position is spending its time on, like people and the strategy and where do we, where do we need to be in 18 months or three years or five years. That's only you, what you can do as a business leader. Can you talk a little bit about how you have learned how to handle either mistakes or things that you wish you would have done differently or maybe hard lessons learned as you moved on throughout your career? I mean, literally starting, I don't even know what your entry level job was, but then being up for being CEO of the entire company and like prior to that running Asia, India, literally run your way all the way up through a $22 billion company. But it always sounds like you were just kind of in the game. And I know you're not perfect. No human being's perfect. I'm sure you had hard days or hard years, whatever. But it just seems like you kind of had this growth perspective about, you know, looking to what you have and how are you going to build it to where it needs to go. And then, but then that just kind of parlayed into a new responsibility, et cetera. Can you talk about maybe humility or growth or taking feedback or dealing with, you know, thinking about things that you wish you would have done differently, mistakes, et cetera? Yeah, most, most of my success was due to getting the, the right group of people together and the right te the team working it and improving a business. It's, I had a role in that, but it was a team effort. And, and I really believe that. Going back to my very first general manager's job, which was actually in Green Bay, Wisconsin, we had a very successful run, but we had very, very talented people and getting them in the right spots and giving them what, you know, the mission, that's what made, that's what made it successful. And that worked in Wisconsin, it worked in Connecticut, it worked in Europe and Expedex and other jobs. Now that said, there, there were many mistakes along the way as well. And, and 
I would say the ones that come to mind the quickest are when I didn't seek out or didn't listen to people around me and their positions or points of view. Sometimes I, I can recall several uh, hiring decisions I made where I was sure that this person was a perfect fit uh, and I was wrong. And I remember one time where I was sure and my team that I had so much faith in and, and, and collaborated so well with, they tried to tell me I was wrong and I didn't listen to them and they were absolutely right and I was wrong. So that maybe comes with, you know, uh, experience and, and wisdom that you gain with time, but getting more people's input is better than getting fewer people's input and yeah, it's harder, and sometimes you have can more people to convince, and that creates more work. But getting more people to participate in an outcome is all almost always better than just going off and saying, "Oh, I've got this one. I know the right answer." And, and I made that mistake along the way, and and probably still make that mistake today sometimes. But but you also learn from mistakes probably more than you learn from successes. So. Just being able to admit when you're wrong is probably helpful as well. Can you talk a little bit about maybe the next 10 or 15 years from a work from home perspective, from a, from a Zoom, Google Hangouts, Microsoft Teams, et cetera? Like I have two friends, both of them are executives with well-known corporate companies here in Memphis. And one of them said that his workday, just by not being at the office and not doing meetings, I mean, he's a high-level executive. His workday is about 65% of what it could be. Now, he still does other things, but just by not being in the same building and unnecessary meetings, it's just really freed up a lot of time. And I have another friend that said closer to like 40, 50%. And I know some of this can vary but difference between the organizations, but, you know, like Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, other companies that are maybe a little bit more progressive and more innovative from a tech standpoint or Silicon Valley, et cetera. You know, they've been in the news about, you know, telling people just plan on working from home forever, certain positions, programmers. I've got another friend who was a developer and he ran the development for Shipped on the platform side before they were acquired by Target. And he talked about, I mean, he was in Memphis the whole time and his team of engineers was all around the country. But I'm curious, over the next, let's say, 5, 10, 15 years after we have really gone through three, four heavy months of COVID, do you see any long-term change happening to corporate America or just main main business America? Do you see any, you know, lasting change because of COVID, like jumpstarting anything happening? And if so, what does that look like to you? Yeah, I mean, I've I've had some conversations with folks about what will this create in terms of going forward. So, as an example. We've got 200 student employees working from home right now, and by the looks of it, our productivity has not suffered, and our, we're still getting good feedback from our customers. So it's easy to say, well, we could do this, and why am I paying $30,000 a month in rent? I can just have everybody work home. I, I also think there's a, a but in all of that. You know, we're in the we're in the first inning of a nine inning baseball game here. We haven't gone through, we've gone through a quarter working from home, not even a year, not a budget. We haven't set a budget or missed a budget yet. And 
you know, I think some of what we are missing is the personal interaction and the coaching opportunities. So I don't think, I mean, I know I'm not uh, interacting with my management team uh, on the same frequency that I was uh, in February or January. Now, in some cases, yeah, that frees up time, but I, I don't think there's, there's zero cost uh, associated with, you know, working remotely. I think there's missed opportunities for coaching, for counseling, for getting different opinions, and, and some of it I just don't think we know yet. Now, that said, what you said is right. I mean, I lived in, in a big corporate enterprise or, you know, we had quarterly meetings and we had meetings because we've always had these meetings. And, and I suspect that a lot of that uh, has gone away as it should have. Now, it might creep back if everybody goes back to the office. I don't know. But I think somewhere in between is what's right. But I also think it's early to call it. And I think maybe I'm old school, but I I miss the interaction with the people that I work with. Zoom is nice and you look nice and your office (laughs) looks interesting. But I like the, uh, the personal interaction. I think it made me a better leader when I could walk out into my facility, I mean, not just people, my assistant or the, or the people on my floor, but wander, you know, walk, leading by wandering around and, and going out into a facility and interacting with the people who are making products or maintaining equipment. Can't do all that now either. And I think that that helps create, it creates unity and a, a common purpose. And I don't know that Zoom's just going to replace that overnight. Yeah. Can you talk about how you learned how to accept and encounter issues from a business standpoint? Like, let's say there's just some major thing that happened. And I don't know if that was once a year, once every three years, but maybe early on where you just maybe you felt inexperienced about how to figure it out. And then as your career continued to just advance and you take on more and more responsibility. And then even like, I know it's probably small potatoes because of all the things that you've been through, but then, you know, pivoting ventures and, you know, your team getting headsets and and creating, you know, work from home and getting all the tools you needed. And then you talked about customers are still happy. 95% of the people are engaged in doing the work from home and the rest are, you know, at the office. But how have you learned how to just handle issues, accept them. I mean, would you have sleepless nights? Did you get more accustomed to them? I mean, when you were just completely thrown off guard? Well, when, when something major happens, you have to realize that your organization, your, the people that work in your organization are looking to the leadership to see how do you respond or how do you react to whatever adversity that is. So if it was... Uh, the recession in 2008, and I was at Expedex, and we, you know, we could see it coming, but we couldn't, just couldn't catch up with it. But you can't panic. I mean, you've got, in that case, literally thousands of people and thousands of families who are depending on the leadership team and, and the leader, the individual who's in that role, to figure it out. So panic is just, it's not an option. You just have to figure it out. 
and now to, to answer your question, how you get the smartest people on your, on your leadership team and you get them involved and you, and you go to work on it together and you get all the input you can from people who, who may have been through something like it and you listen and you, you start taking actions. You know, in the case of COVID and ventures, we started working on COVID plans in February. I went back and checked in my emails and, my, and our subjects, and we started talking about what would we do if this became an issue. And then when you go back and read some of the emails in early and mid-February, it was pretty, it was pretty high level and uh, naive about what some of the impacts could be. But it all changed really rapidly in about a 30-day period. But I have people that I work with at Ventures who know a whole lot more about call centers and managing students than I ever will. So getting them uh, involved, asking them what they need, telling them, you know, we need to figure this out by when, what can I do to help you? That's kind of the way we approached it. And, you know, we also had we would get our customers involved and our customers were very supportive and cared about our, you know, they believe in our mission at Ventures as well. So they wanted to see the, the business survive uh, COVID and get through it and our students to be safe and healthy as well as productive. So we just got the right people together and, and, and figured it out and it somehow came together. That is good. I mean, that's, <laughs> you moved, you said 200, but don't you have more than 200 employees? We're probably pushing 225 employees, but we have again we have about 10% of our employees who are still working in our facilities because we didn't want to shut down the facility. The universities are op- is open, our facilities are well maintained and free of COVID, and we have some students who couldn't work from home, and we didn't want to furlough them, so we gave them the option of still coming in. If you go into the office, you have to look long and hard to find an employee. <laughs> Right. And I know I've, I've been there and a lot of desks, a lot of computers. And I, I just think it's very, very impressive that your team, 225 university students, were able to pivot and relocate home and have all the things that they need minus 5% and, and keep things running smooth. I mean, it's very impressive. Very fortunate. <laughs> did it feel weird or was, did it ever feel embarrassing and I think I already know the answer, but flying company planes, private planes, you know, being a, an executive of a very large company and then taking a startup company, you know, at ventures, like from a prod perspective, did that ever occur or was always the service, the value, the, the core belief, humility? I mean, did it just kind of roll right into it? What was that transition like? Well, the short answer is yes, I miss the uh, IP aircraft. <laughs> if you ask any retired CEO, who, the, the, for, the thing they miss the most, and I wasn't CEO, but the thing they miss the most is the corporate airplanes. So. <laughs> but going from that to UMRF, and I, again, I worked with the senior leaders over at IP, and, and they're all great folks, and I miss them, and they're good friends. But going from there to work at Ventures has been a lot of fun. I wouldn't say weird at all. I work with some really, really smart and and fun people to work with. They're much typically much younger than I am, and you know my experience is helpful to them sometimes. My old jokes are funny to them because they're they've not heard them yet, so I can recycle a lot of old material. 
but it, it it's really all about just continuing to, to stay productive, continuing to contribute to the mission of the university and to all these uh, young people who go to go to school there. I mean, it they are, I don't know, when we started out, we had 23 students in, in August of 17. Now we have 225. So I don't know every one of them by name, but I, I, I do enjoy, you know, interacting with them when we, when we could do that and helping them with questions, issues, resumes, job searches, doing whatever we can to help them succeed. So it, it's, it's actually a great way to downshift, you know, not from 70 miles an hour to, to zero, but from 70 miles an hour to, to 35 or something like that. Yeah. You know, one thing we talked about before I started recording was I just, I thought it was really interesting, but you know, that you were on the board of Sherwin-Williams, I guess starting in, was that 2009? Yeah, I think that's right. Nine through 17, I think. Yeah. Right. And then Sherwin-Williams bought Valspar. So then that made it a $17 billion company roughly. Yep. And, you know, the stock price for Sherwin-Williams after that went from 58 a share to $313 a share. I remember reading some things like, you know, several hundreds of millions of dollars in just cost savings, et cetera. But what was that deal like on the acquisition side when you were on the board of Sherwin-Williams? I mean, that seems like a very unique opportunity for Sherwin-Williams that created a ton of value for it. And then what had you learned at IP that maybe gave you perspective and contribution on the board? And can you just talk a little bit about mergers and acquisitions, when they go well, when they don't go well, just things that you've learned throughout your career? Sure. Well, Sherwin-Williams is, a, is a, another very, very good company. Uh, it's had really strong leadership at senior levels for a long time. The Valspar acquisition was, it gave Sherwin several things that were really beneficial. It gave a, a lot of scale, uh, for, which from a manufacturing standpoint, gave them uh, some real good cost synergies. It was also complementary from a from a market and customer facing standpoint. Sherwin Williams' big strength in North America is the paint stores that are you know all over uh, the United States. Uh, we probably have fifteen of them around the Memphis area, and that is a terrific brand. They've got great quality people. If you go in to a Sherman Williams paint store, they, they'll help you solve your problem, not just figure out what paint is the least expensive kind of thing. So whereas Valspar had maybe a bigger footprint outside of the U.S., they were in some more technical coatings than, say, uh, home interior, exterior through, a, through the store channel. They were uh, big in industrial coatings and bigger o- overseas footprint. Uh, where we were trying to grow Sherwin-Williams share. So it was a complementary acquisition. You know, about half the acquisitions that are made don't work out. Uh, I've bought, in my time at IP, my businesses bought several different businesses. And my track record selling businesses is probably better than my track record was buying businesses because, well, for a lot of different reasons. But that one... uh, really worked out well for Sherwin and its shareholders. You know, they, they often talk about 
out in Washington, you know, Microsoft millionaires, but uh, the Sherwin share price is now, I think it's, it was $580 earlier this week. And you're right, it was in the like 40s or 50s when I joined that board in 2008. So it was a great experience and really enjoyed working with those folks. Could you give maybe three to five bullet points on why a lot of deals don't work out? When you're trying to buy a business, you've got to, you're, you're trying to grow or, or, or you're trying to fill out a strategy, but you're going into something with, a, with rose-colored glasses. You have, you have to be fair in your assessment and not overly optimistic. Your assumptions, you can make uh, assumptions that this is going to go great and all the numbers will look great. And, and if your assum- assumptions are too rosy, uh, if you've, fall, you know, the first year out of the gate on an acquisition, it's really hard to make the numbers work out ever if you don't get out of the gate really well. So uh, it's, it's the assumptions you put into it. And is there enough balance to those assumptions or are they all too rosy? Uh, do you have a strong enough organization to pull off the execution? Do you really understand what the culture is in that company and, and how it matches up? Do you have the right kinds of leaders to execute on the acquisition? There's all kinds of, I'll say, the little binary switches that that they can work in your favor, but when they don't, it can really hurt your chances of having a success, having a successful acquisition. I guess maybe three main things: the the return side of it, the forecasts on top line sales, and then bottom line ROI. And then you talked about the leadership you know, on the company that you're acquiring, but then also the company that is doing the acquiring, just integrating those two things and creating just alignment and just maintaining that level of service across the board from a leadership standpoint. And then the culturals, just the two cultural identities and rolling those into one and then getting people plan on the same field together and just moving into the new direction of the company. I mean, could you bullet down to that? Yeah, a lot of that. I'll give you an example. IP went through a lot of acquisitions uh, in the, I'd say, 90 to 2005 kind of period uh, and went up as high as $30 billion in revenue. And then we ended up divesting a bunch of things to, to get to where they are now. But IP bought uh, some companies that added manufacturing scale. We bought another company that when we looked at it, we said, this company is really better at the whole customer experience than IP was. We were a big manufacturing-driven, kind of disciplined, manufacturing, nuts and bolts, cost-driven company. And this competitor that we bought was much better at figuring out how to please customers and creating value that way than we were. So we benefited from that synergy. And the other thing we benefited from is every time we bought a company, we figured out who the best people were and we kept all the best people. So you end up, if you buy five or six different companies in the same industry, you end up with the best leaders in the, in the whole industry because you bought everybody else's. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why IP has succeeded over a long period of time. So, but it's about people and figuring out what companies are good at and, and will they work together or is it oil and water when you put them together? Yeah, I'm curious. On a deal that size, that's $10 million, give or take, I think it was 10, might have been nine or might have been 11. How long does a conversation like that take place? And why would Valspar not buy Sherwin? Or was that just Sherwin felt 
because of its U.S. presence? I mean, I understand the complimentary things it would receive, but what does the actual deal side of that look like? And then from a valuation standpoint, how much back and forth or how high was one on an anchoring side on one way and then an anchoring side on the other? Were they off, if any, on the final number? I mean, what's some insight into that, that opportunity and a deal that size? Well, yeah, and, and I don't know the exact numbers. And, and if I did, I wouldn't want to go into them in too much detail. But I, as I recall, Sherwin was probably 2x the size in terms of revenues of Valspar. So it was by far the bigger of the two. And one of the things, you know, when you get into a, a deal, whether it's Sherwin and Valspar or some of IP's acquisitions, the deal itself is often a, a six to 18 month period of time. But most likely, the board of that company and the, senior, and the CEO and the senior management group have been talking about uh, the strategy and the options and the, the potential acquisitions, the potential divestitures every year for, for multiple years. So, so you'd have surfaced that company as a potential acquisition or a potential divestiture, whatever, years ago. And and you, you're constantly having those discussions on an annual basis with your board of directors uh, and your management team, and you're updating assumptions, and you're watching the share price or how that other company, what other things could trigger action on it. So, it, you know, the deal themselves happen in a relatively compact time, but the strategies are five years and, and the discussions with the board and the CEO and, and to some extent the bankers and all that, they're, they've been going on for, for much longer. Gotcha. Shifting gears a little bit, from a personal standpoint, I know you've been three years at Ventures. What are you most looking forward to over the next 10 years? What do you enjoy the most and how are you thinking about spending, let's say, the next five to 10 years? Well, I'm really looking forward to being able to go to football and basketball games again. Yeah. <laughs> From a work standpoint, adventures, yeah, I'd, I'd like to just keep, see us continue to grow. And, you know, we'd like to get from 225 student employees to 500 and create more opportunities for our management staff to, to grow and in responsibility and, and income. Uh, and to really create more opportunities for Memphis students. So that that's really a continuation of what we're doing. Beyond that, personally, it's it's really spending time with my wife and my my children and my grandchildren and and doing you know the couple hobbies I've got with friends. And uh, as I said earlier, I, I miss uh, working with my colleagues' adventures. I also miss you know hanging out with the people I like to hang out with. When you one of the biggest things that happens when you retire, you go from interacting with maybe a thousand people in a week when you consider meetings with, you know, town hall meetings and 20 people meetings and 50 people meetings. And I mean, you, you're, you're seeing a lot of different people now, you know, COVID post COVID I'm seeing, you know, my, my immediate family and maybe two other people a week. It's, it's a big change in pace. But nothing fancy. Um, I'd like to spend more time with my wife. And we, we are fortunate that as long as we've been married, we still enjoy spending time together. And 
and we've got great kids and great grandkids and and then squeeze in some work here and there. Yeah, and some hunting, right? Yep, some hunting and uh, cutting some grass. I hear you. Last question I got, when you think back just on your career and and then also what's ahead, is there maybe three to five things like principles or just values, things that you feel like if you pass on, just kind of how to live and, and what to think about and how to kind of base decisions off of where really if you maybe live in that kind of manner, you live according to those values, et cetera, that things might play out some way, one way or another in a positive manner? Yeah, I don't walk around with a, a, a top five list or anything like that, but I, I always believe that you have to care about, genuinely care about the people you work with and their lives, not just their performance at work, but their lives. Uh, and if you do, you'll earn, I, I, I did say this in my past, if you care about the people that you work with, you will earn their discretionary effort. And they will, they'll go above and beyond that 85% uh, and they'll give you the 100 or the 110%. And that discretionary effort is what makes, uh, makes the difference between a, a poor or an average team and a great team. And in my own experience, I worked harder for managers or leaders who I knew genuinely cared about me and my family and what was important. And I didn't feel as good or didn't give as much uh, of my own discretionary effort if I didn't have that connection with my leader managers. Pretty basic, but it's also pretty special sauce. So I'd say caring for the people that you work with, realizing that you might work with them 10 or 12 hours a day, but there's another 10 or 12 hours a day where really important things are going on in their life and, and knowing that what those are and caring about that as well, I think makes work a much more fun proposition for everybody. That's great. Thanks so much for carving out time this afternoon. Just love seeing you and love getting to hear you just talk about all these different things that we talk about. And I think there's a lot of, lot to take away on how to just think through and apply and and maybe be challenged to think through some things in a different way that might create more good in, in our organizations and our companies and our families and our society and everywhere else where we may be. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you like the show, please rate it and leave a review. Also, I have a weekly newsletter that comes out each week with the new episode, show notes, and more. You can sign up for this newsletter at podcast.sampcoats.com. Have a great day. Okay.